0: You are listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at City on a Hill Open your Bibles to Mark 2. We are About two weeks away from the month of December, and you know what that means? Decorations start going up. The Christmas movies start playing. The Starbucks cups start changing. They cryogenically unfreeze Mariah Carey and Michael Buble to invade our radio stations for about a month. All good things, all necessary things. I love this time of year. I love the time of uh, Christmas. I love Christmas movies. I thought about one of my favorite all-time Christmas movies, the 1983 cult classic, of course, A Christmas Story. Um, Such a good, wow, huge crowd for A Christmas Story. I'm I'm here for it. Um, So many great things about this movie, but when you think about it, it's really, above all else, a commentary on expectations. It's a commentary on expectations. Throughout the movie, Ralphie, the main character and the main narrator of the story, again and again is met with shock as what he thinks will happen, his expectations begin to collide with what actually happens, reality. And things do not go the way he expects them to go. It, it's all throughout the movie. For example, what does Ralphie want for Christmas? The official Red Ryder carbine action 200 shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells the time. Right? <laughs> I didn't memorize that, it's on my, it's on my notes, but yeah, that, this is what he wants. And yet, what do his mother and his teacher and the disgruntled Santa at Higby's all tell him? You'll shoot your eye out. He has in his mind that things are going to go one way. He's going to have this air rifle. He's going to heroically save the day. Remember all the vignettes that he daydreams, how he kind of rolls in there. And, and he, he's like the hero of the story. And the air rifle is kind of what makes him able to conquer the bad guys. He's continuously daydreaming these outlandish scenarios. That's his expectation of what's going to happen. But what happens in reality? He shoots his eye out. Yeah, it's not what he expected. There's another scenario, if you remember, the, the paper that he has to write for Miss Shields. And he, and he writes the paper, and he thinks like, "This is the best paper that's ever been written." And he, and he begins the daydream, and she's going to read the paper and she's going to think it's poetry, and she writes the A+, plus plus, plus right all across the, the boards. What happens in reality? C+. Plus, and you'll shoot your eye. Out. Yes. Not what he expected. And it's not just with Ralphie. His whole family expects to have a wonderful Christmas dinner prepared by uh, the mother. And the expectations are, of course, ruined when the neighbor's dog somehow makes it into the kitchen, destroys the turkey. They end up having to spend Christmas dinner uh, at a Chinese restaurant. Even that doesn't go as expected. The entirety of the movie goes on and on, and nothing happens the way the people expect it to happen. This morning in Mark chapter 2, Jesus arrives back in Capernaum. Uh, Word has gotten around that he is home, and everyone has expectations for what Jesus might be able to do for them. Everyone has expectations for how Jesus might serve them in some way. And over and over again, he says things and he does things that leaves people thinking he is not who we expected him to be. This did not go the way we expected it. Let's just jump right in. We've got a lot to cover. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I think you're going to see what I'm saying as we get through this text. And, And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So Jesus arrives back in Capernaum and annoyingly, I mean, almost like a TMZ report, word gets out. That Jesus is back home and everyone begins to swarm to his house. And notice it doesn't even seem to bother him at all. He's not like telling them to go away. He doesn't tell them to come back later. He's not like, hey, church is until Saturday. See you at the synagogue, right? Give me some space. It just says that he immediately starts preaching the word to them. And this is, you you gotta get this, this is central to understanding the mission of Jesus Christ, the mission of his earthly ministry. If you remember in last week's passage, there was a point in that story where Jesus had gone away alone to pray, the disciples were looking for him, they find him, they tell him, hey, everybody is looking for you. And do you remember what he said? Mark chapter one, verse 38, he says, let us go on to the next towns that I might preach there also for that is why I came out. That is the purpose of Jesus' mission, his ministry, to preach, to rightly proclaim the word of God. So Jesus begins to preach, and more and more people start showing up, it says, so much so that there wasn't even room at the door. In other words, the house was at max capacity. Jesus was in one part of the house. He's preaching. People are coming in. They're filing in left and right. They're shoulder to shoulder. It is, the crowd is getting shoved further and further back because there's so many people there to where they're even crowding the door. You cannot get into this home. It's at max capacity. Now, while this is happening, some guys in town hear that Jesus is there as well. They'd heard about him before. His reputation had begun to spread. Uh, He was becoming known for the guy who cast out demons and heals illnesses, including leprosy. They think to himself, if this guy can do that, maybe he can also heal our friend who is paralyzed as well. And so they, they, they construe this idea where they put their buddy on a mattress, they carry him to the house. When they arrive, they see that the door is jammed up with people. There's no way they're getting this guy in there. And so like any reasonable person would, they scale the side of the home, destroy the roof, create a hole and drop their buddy down with a rope, right? I mean, that's, this is normal. I mean, this is what you're thinking you're doing as well. In the middle of the sermon, I mean, Jesus is preaching and it's just like, right, a little body on a, on a mattress down in front of him. I like to think that I'm pretty unfazed as a preacher, right? I mean, like phones will ring, people get up and go to the bathroom or come in late, babies cry. It doesn't seem to bother me. I, I rarely even notice it. I can't say that I would remain unshakable if this was happening in the middle of a sermon. And I've preached it here before with the roof missing, right, I mean, so we were almost there. And I just think if if a body is coming down in front of me while I'm preaching on a little gurney, it's probably going to get my attention. It does get Jesus' attention, but notice it's not what the guys were doing, but what actions, what, what the actions of these individuals indicated. Look at the first part of verse five. It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, it wasn't what they were doing that got his attention, but why they were doing it. They've got his attention. They believe, they actually believed Jesus can do this. He hasn't done anything like this yet, at least not in Mark's account. But again, like we saw last week, Jesus can do things that normal people cannot do. He cast out demons, normal people can't do that. He can heal heal people who are sick, normal people can't do that. He can touch people with leprosy and, and they're healed, normal people can't do that. He hasn't healed a paralytic yet, so this whole plan is a little bit of a risk. It's built on faith, it requires faith. It's reasonable faith because it stands to reason that if he can do all these other things, surely he can do this as well, but it's still a risk involved here. And so get there. So they're on the roof, they're worn out. They're probably out of breath at this point. They just carried a grown man across the town on a gurney up the side of a house. They've sat him down, they've removed part of the roof and they have fit him through this hole and are lowering him down, presumably on a rope or something like that. And so they are worn out and they finally get him down in front of Jesus. This is the moment they've been waiting for. They're so pumped, they're full of faith. It's gonna happen, Jesus is gonna heal my friend. They're looking down through the hole. Verse five it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, you can imagine them looking through the hole like, Why did he say that? No, do the thing where you touch him. Jesus, touch him and make him, heal him, right? Like, this is not what you expect to happen. This is your, so while this is going on, something else is happening as well. Look at verses six and seven. It says, now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their heart, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now we talked about this last week, who the scribes are. They're Old Testament theologians, right? They're experts in Mosaic law. They know the Old Testament well. Apparently they are in the house as well the reputation of Jesus as a teacher and a preacher had gone so far that even the experts in theology were coming to hear him preach. And at this point, this is early in Jesus' ministry, it doesn't seem like they're all that antagonistic towards him. They're just curious, like, who is this guy that everybody's talking about that speaks and preaches with such authority? Now, I'm sure they they were uncomfortable by him. I mean, he, everything he did was very unorthodox. He, he preaches differently than the other uh, rabbis do. He, he doesn't appeal to tradition or, or uh, any kind of rabbinical school of thought. He did everything very different. So I'm sure they were probably uncomfortable a little bit. But what Jesus just said here to the paralytic, this crosses the line. You cannot tell someone their sins are forgiven. You can't do that. Why? Verse 7 tells us because only God can forgive sin. You, you can't do that. You've crossed the line, Jesus. Now, this is true, to be fair, for the scribes, thinking that only God can do this. Isaiah 43, verse 25, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God says in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Only God can do this. They are not wrong about that. And so so to make a claim that makes you equal to God was considered blasphemy. It's punishable by death. It had to be clear. There had to be incontrovertible evidence and witnesses that saw it. But if it was clear and the evidence was present and witnesses were present, you could be put to death by stoning on the spot. That's what's going on, by the way. If you remember the story in John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59, Jesus is speaking to a group of Jewish people. They're accusing him of, of performing miracles through demonic power. And, and Jesus makes the statement, something to the effect that Abraham longed to see my day. And this is very confusing to them. Abraham's been dead for centuries. They say, you're not even 50 years old yet. And, and, and yet Abraham longed to see your day? And in verse 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. me, the Greek phrase that is equal, equivalent to God's covenant name, Yahweh in Hebrew. And, and these this crowd, they were not confused at all by what Jesus was doing here. It was clear and incontrovertible what was happening here because in verse 59, the next verse, it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him. They're like, ooh, blasphemy, you're dead, right? They're getting stones ready. It says, but Jesus did the ninja thing where he hides himself, no one can find him. (laughs) It's clear in their minds that this is blasphemy. He's making himself equal to God. Now, of course, it's not blasphemy because why? Jesus is God, so he can do this, but they don't believe that. And so they try to stone him here in John 8. and Mark 2, our passage this morning, it's not as clear or incontrovertible. Jesus is being a bit ambiguous here. He doesn't say, I forgive your sins. He just simply says, your sins are forgiven. I mean, it could be that God is forgiving your sins, and he's sort of speaking prophetically here, right? It's open for interpretation, in other words. Either way, it bothers them a great deal. But notice, it doesn't bother them enough to actually say something about it. Verse 6, it says, they were questioning in their heart. They're thinking about all this stuff. They're not actually addressing it with them, but they're certainly, their mind is kind of going, yeah, this feels like blasphemy to me. But it doesn't matter. Look at verse 8. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? I mean, just tremendous irony here, is there not? They are scoffing inwardly at the idea that Jesus has somehow made himself divine or equivalent to God while he is literally reading their minds. Just a lot of irony. And Mark is going to use irony a lot to amplify the authority of Jesus. But I mean, can you imagine how this must have felt? You're, you're just getting called out for what you're thinking. I would be in so much trouble if I were near Jesus. <laughs> I have a pretty good filter, right? But I mean, just because I don't say it doesn't mean I don't think it. I would be like, oh, no, he's around again. Think good thoughts. Think good thoughts. <laughs> Hi, G- Yeah, right? I mean, it would, be, it would be hard. Look at what Jesus says in verse 9 through 11. He says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then check this out. He's talking to the scribes. He looks back down at the, fair, or the paralytic and he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. I mean, this whole story is just wild. Jesus is preaching. It's packed. The roof opens up. These guys lower their friend down on a mattress. It's in the middle of the sermon. It interrupts the whole thing. They think he's about to heal the man. Jesus is like, your sins are forgiven. They're confused. What is he doing? While everyone is trying to figure out what's happening, Jesus looks over at the scribes who have said nothing at this point and begins a confrontation with them. And right in the middle of the confrontation with them, he looks back at the paralytic and he's like, hey, pick your stuff up and go home. I mean, think of the paralytic for a minute, right? I mean, he's been dropped down on a rope and he's just kind of (laughs) like, like he can't go anywhere, right? He's just sitting there in front of everyone. And so Jesus is like, yeah, get up and go. And he stands up and leaves. And, And look at verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Yeah, same. This is not what we expect. Nothing about this story goes the way we expect it to go. It's not what the scribes expected. It's not what the crowds expected. It's not what the friends on the roof expected. It's certainly not what the paralytic man was expecting. But Jesus often is not who we expect him to be. He doesn't do what we think he ought to do sometimes or what we wish he would do sometimes and sometimes he does things we don't think he should do. He's not what we expect. There's another example of this, of this sort of defying expectations. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, as a reader of this text in the modern world, it's hard to figure out why this might be so controversial. So let's unpack it just a little. First, notice that Jesus continues his pattern of teaching and preaching. Verse 13 says that there were crowds who were following him along the Sea of Galilee, and he was teaching them as he went. And this pattern establishes how Jesus really is in every way a rabbi. In fact, this is why both in Mark's gospel and in the other gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, you see people regularly refer to Jesus as teacher. It's the equivalent in Greek to rabbi. So they recognize him as a rabbi. And this pattern of the rabbi, of calling people to follow him, is very consistent with what the ancient tradition tells us, which Jesus has already done at this point too, by the way. If you remember a few weeks ago when Chris uh, preached through verses 16 through 20 in chapter one, Jesus called his first four disciples. So this, this part of the story actually meets the expectations a little bit. We see Jesus operating as a rabbi and he is by all counts doing things consistent with what we would see a rabbi do. It's not what he's doing that defies our expectations, but who he's calling to follow him that defies our expectations usually rabbis are going to look for the best and the brightest young minds to begin following them, to to take the yoke of the rabbi. That's the terminology of the uh, Old Testament world, to take the yoke of the rabbi and to begin to follow. The ones who had the sharpest memory, the ones who knew the most of the Old Testament scripture, those were the people that were privileged to begin following the rabbi. Not everybody gets to follow the rabbi. You got to connect with that. In the event that you were not chosen to follow a rabbi, you would, from that point forward, learn your father's trade, and that would become your career. That's what you would do. Now, do you remember a few weeks ago when Jesus called Simon, Andrew, James, and John? Do you remember what they were doing? They were fishing. Verse 16 says they were fishermen. They had gone on to learn their father's trade. Meaning what? They weren't selected by the rabbis. They weren't the sharpest tools in the shed. In football terminology, they were cut from the team. In baseball terminology, they were designated for assignment. And Jesus is like, yep, those idiots right there. Come on, follow me. Yeah, not what we expected. Here in chapter two, Like the Dallas Cowboys, Jesus makes another highly unpopular draft selection. (laughs) He calls Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Now, who is Levi? What do we know about him? We know that he's a tax collector, which is one of the most despised occupations in the Jewish world, by the way. If you were a tax collector, it meant that you were dishonest. It meant that you probably extorted people for money for more than what they were required to pay. It meant that you turned your back on your own people because you now worked for the evil empire, Rome. Given that they were likely in Capernaum, still, uh, this would have been a tax booth, which is what the text says, um, which is... almost think of it like as a toll booth, a modern-day toll booth. We know in the ancient world uh, the ruler at this time, Herod Antipas, had uh, several booths set up along the way leading into Capernaum from the Sea of Galilee in order to tax fishermen on the catches that they made for that day. This is one of the ways that he extorted money out of the Jewish people to begin to build his empire. And so Levi... It's one of these individuals sitting at one of these booths as fishermen are coming from the sea back into the city of Capernaum, and he is taking money for all of the fish that they catch, extorting money out of them. So he would have been hated. He would have been despised by the locals. But there is a second layer to this that makes him even more despicable. That his name is Levi is very interesting. Mark refers to him as Levi here. In Matthew's account of this same story, Matthew is going to refer to him not as Levi, but as himself, Matthew. So Matthew is the same person as Levi. Uh, We think that either he had two names, which is not totally uncommon. It's uncommon because both the names are Jewish. Typically in the ancient world, you would have two names, but it would be your Jewish name and your Greek name depending on who you were talking to. Levi and Matthew are both very Jewish names, but it's not impossible. It's not unheard of. Either that, or we think that Mark is actually not referring to him as Levi, a name, but a Levite, the title. In other words, Mark is saying a Levite, the son of Alphaeus, who was sitting at the tax booth. The, The Greek is a little bit unclear here. Either way, it indicates that he was almost certainly a part of the tribe of Levi. Now, who are the Levites? They're priests in the Old Testament. So this means that Matthew or Levi by birthright was of priestly descent. He should have grown up as a priest. So this implies that this guy not only took the worst job imaginable as a tax collector, but he did so to the detriment of rejecting his call to be a priest and carry out priestly duties. People would have hated this guy. They would have hated this guy. And Jesus is like, that's my guy. Come on, people already hate you. You're gonna do great. Come on. (laughs) This is not what we expect of, of Jesus. If you keep reading, the plot thickens. You find out that this is not the only questionable person following Jesus. Look at verse 15. It says, And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, wait a minute. This can't be right. This can't be right. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's perfect. He's the sinless example of godliness. He would never sit down with sinners. I mean, that would be as absurd, honestly, as a pastor having people from AA and NA come and attend the church, right? That would be like a church offering ministry to sex addicts. This is unthinkable. This can't happen. This is too far. This is what the Pharisees are thinking. Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with those people, the tax collectors and sinners? Why would he do this? Of what value are these people to him? What could they possibly offer him? Surely he could spend his time more effectively with better people. Jesus answers them in verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Verse 17 is crucial to understanding who Jesus is and what he's doing in his earthly ministry. There's two equally important details in verse 17 that you have to connect with. The first one is this. Jesus calls out the sin. He says, I came to call sinners. That implies there are sinners to be called who are guilty of sin. He's acknowledging the reality of sin. There's there's no sugarcoating this with Jesus right he he there are things that we do that i do that you do that are wrong and that are sinful jesus is not going to ignore that he's going to acknowledge it he is going to call out the sin but equally important to that number 2 jesus calls out to the sinner so so listen he's not going to give you a break and say well you're not that bad right? I mean, don't be too hard on yourself. Look, if you just do more good things to outweigh the bad things, then God will be happy with you. No, he's not going to do that. He's going to say, you are a sinner. And by the way, you are who I have come for. Verse 17 is the key to understanding Jesus. Verse 17 explains everything about what you should expect of Jesus. Jesus is the great physician. He can do the things normal people cannot do. He can cast out demons. He can cure illnesses. He can heal leprosy. He can tell paralyzed people to get up, take your stuff, and walk, go home. And he can even forgive sin. And yet, he continues to defy our expectations because we have the wrong expectations. We ask the wrong questions of Jesus. The Pharisees here are asking the wrong questions. The question is not, why does he spend time with these people? The question is, why would Jesus, if all of this, if he can do all these things, why would Jesus want to spend time with anyone other than the people who are affected by this stuff? Why, listen, if he can cast out demons, why would he want to spend time with anyone who doesn't have some kind of spiritual warfare going on? If he can cure illnesses, why would he want to spend time with anyone who is not sick or doesn't have leprosy or doesn't have some kind of ailment? Why would he want to spend time with healthy people if he can do that? If he can heal paralysis, why would he want to spend any time with anyone who doesn't have some physical disability going on? And most importantly, if he can forgive sin, why in the world... Would he want to spend time with people who have no interest in acknowledging their sinfulness? Jesus spends his time with the people for whom he came. He's going to call out the sin and then he's going to call out to the sinner. Both are central to the mission of Jesus Christ. And this is why so often He's not who we expect Him to be. You rarely find Christians or a church that is good at both of these things at the same time. Some churches are really, really effective at calling out the sin and have zero interest in calling out to the sinner. The very battered, bruised, Broken people, the ones riddled with guilt and shame from the choices that they've made or the sexual immorality that has stained their life or the relationships that they have destroyed, whether that be their marriage or with their children. These are the people that a lot of churches just wish would sort of go away because they're kind of ruining our vibe here. Folks, listen to me. If hurting and broken people don't feel comfortable in your church, it is usually because Jesus isn't there. Because, listen... The hurting and the broken people are the people for whom Jesus came. They are the people for whom Jesus died. He calls out to the sinner. If they don't feel comfortable in your church, it's, it's, something's gone dreadfully wrong. But on the other side of the pendulum, you have churches that are all about calling out to the sinner and are totally unwilling to call out the sin. In fact, they won't even acknowledge it. They're welcoming, inclusive, kind. Doesn't matter if you're living in any kind of sinful pattern, if you're living contradictory to what Scripture teaches. That's too judgmental. We're not about that. We, don't want to, we want to be more like Jesus. Jesus literally calls himself the judge. This is not consistent with Jesus either. Jesus is going to call out to the sinner, but what is he going to call out to the sinner to do? To repent. If there's no sin, there's, there's no repentance. Repentance. So let me give you a truth. My prayer for you is that that you will remain at City on a Hill for the rest of your life. But but God sometimes moves people into different places. And as, so let's say you're getting moved away. You're a good Christian. You're going to find a church to attend every Sunday, right? Here's a good diagnostic for when you are selecting a church. Hurting and broken people should find comfort in your church that leads to discomfort in their sin. That's the balance. Comfort in the church that leads to discomfort in the sin. We want you to feel comfortable to come in here and and bear it all, to to be radically honest about everything that you've done. Because what you've done doesn't make you any worse than anyone else in here because we're all sinners who fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We want you to feel comfortable. We want you to feel comfortable being able to, to share that, to release that. But the way the word is proclaimed, the way truth is held up as if a mirror to look into should also make you feel increasingly uncomfortable about the sin in your life that you have not dealt with. Jesus calls out to the sinner. That makes some people very uncomfortable. He also is going to call out the sin. That makes another group very uncomfortable. He makes everyone uncomfortable. He isn't what we expect him to be. Right when you think he's gonna heal the paralyzed guy, he starts talking about forgiveness. And you're thinking, what is he doing? Right when you think you have him figured out, he's calling the runaway priest turned tax collector to be his disciple. And you're thinking this is the worst ministry model ever. Right when you start getting on board with the ministry model, he's inviting drunks and addicts and sinners to a dinner party. You're thinking the PR nightmare if this gets on Facebook. It doesn't make any sense. None of this makes any sense at all unless you are one of the drunks or addicts or sinners. And then Jesus becomes the best thing that will ever happen to you in your entire life. He is the gospel. He is the good news to you because for the first time probably in your life, someone will look at you and not ignore all the bad things, all the failures, but love you in spite of them. He's not gonna lie to you. He's not gonna pretend that you're a good person, but he will love you in spite of it. Friends, that's who Jesus is. He's not gonna look past your sin, he can't. He cannot look past your sin, just like he couldn't look past the sin of the paralytic. Hey, heal my friend. Not before we deal with his sin. He can't ignore that. He's God in the flesh. He's the divine son of God. He demands holiness. Do not come under the delusion that Jesus is going to pretend that you are something that you're not. He will not look past and ignore your sin, but he can forgive your sin like he did to the paralytic as well. And then after that, once he's dealt with your sin, he'll begin to put your life back together like he did the paralytic as well. Jesus is not who we expect him to be. He's so much more. And you will begin to understand that the moment you're ready to admit that you're one of the drunks, addicts, or sinners that Jesus came to call. People come to church all the time. I see it, I see it all the time. People come to church thinking, I've got this situation in my life that's bad, whether it's a broken relationship, a marriage, you know, uh, financial problem, whatever. Life. The things that everyone is dealing with at some level and some capacity. And and so people will get in their minds, I'm going to come to church and and I want God to put my life back together and things are going to be great after that. And and what I want you to connect with is that Jesus is capable of putting your life back together. He, He may put it back together differently than you thought it should be put back together. Fair warning. But he is capable of doing that. But he is not going to do that, hear this very clearly, without talking about the sin first. People come into a church wanting the sanctification part, the put me back together part, the heal my paralysis part. They want to skip the son your sins are forgiven part. There's an order to it. Some of you are wondering, why has God not begun to put my life back together? It's because you have not begun to connect with the fact that you have sin that needs to be dealt with. And the moment moment you do, Jesus, like he does for all who confess with their mouth and believe in their heart, will say, forgiven. And then the real work begins. So my prayer for you, my hope for you, is that God would give you today the courage you need to look at yourself in the mirror and just be honest and confess that to him and confess that to another person and begin to allow him to work through the mess that you've made as you follow him like all the other ragtag disciples that he's called. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you call broken people, that there is grace for those who come to acknowledge that they have made a mess of things. We rejoice in the hope that you take the mess that we've made and you do ministry in it. Would you God give courage to your people here today some for perhaps the first time, to acknowledge their sinfulness, to believe in their heart, to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, and to be saved, as the Bible says, Romans 10:8 and 9. We pray for new birth today, salvation today, honesty today, the courage, the willingness to confess those things today, and not be met with judgment but grace, mercy, and forgiveness. How we love you, how we thank you that you repeatedly, continuously defy our expectations. Our expectations are not big enough for who you are, for you're so much greater. How we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We will see you next week.